Welcome to The Deep End with Halen Pittman. I'm your host, of course, Halen Pittman. Guest with me tonight, Logan Jenkins. Hello. If you haven't listened to our first episode, we like to dig deeper into forgotten or underrepresented, underappreciated media, locations, songs, comics. Basically, give those things more credit that we wish the world would. Tell me what you brought forth. My topic is based... It's kind of tertiary. <laughs> the primary thing is Neil Gaiman. He's got plenty of coverage. The secondary thing is his book, American Gods, which focuses on gods in general of all types. And American Gods would be like technology. And I'm sorry if this is spoilers for anyone has the you know, <laughs> That belief creates existence. And those beliefs created creatures that are those gods. The newer gods are all assholes. Right. The brunt of the reason why I bring it up it is because um, I want to do a tourist trap location because that's uh, there's a really important tourist trap in American Gods. The House on the Rock, I think, is yes. the... Okay. the uh, and specifically, the, the merry-go-round transports them to Odin's mind. Okay, so I'm going to read a, a quote from the book. In the USA, people still get the call, or some of them. They feel themselves being called to from the transcendent void, and they respond to it by building a model of it out of beer bottles or somewhere they've never visited or by erecting a gigantic bat house in some part of the country that bats have traditionally declined to visit roadside attractions. People feel themselves being pulled to places where in other parts of the world, they would recognize that part of themselves that is truly transcendent and buy a hot dog and walk around feeling satisfied on a level they can, they cannot truly describe and profoundly dissatisfied on a level beneath that. That's basically the breakdown of tourist traps in the book. The, that was very much in my mind when I was in high school and maybe probably the first part of college. And Trey, the guest on the first episode, who's my best friend, coincidentally, we often went to a beach house that his parents owned that was just like a time for road trips. And so that was part of the, the whole deal was a road trip. For some reason, we just kept seeing these south of the border signs on the road to Myrtle Beach. Uh, south of the border is uh, just a, a sort of racist caricature of a Mexican man, and he's just wearing a sombrero and in st- like basically Speedy Gonzalez, but a little bit more colorful and not a mouse. Yeah, it's it's definitely that 1950s style of over the top, you know, not intentionally trying to be racist, but just trying to be funny. He <laughs> he, and, and, and explain, explain why it's called South of the Border. Well, because it's right below North Carolina, is that correct? Correct. It is. It is. It is just below the the North Carolina South Carolina border. Um, I believe it's, and it's incidentally about. not anywhere near Myrtle Beach. No, the place was founded as a liquor store originally, and, and I believe in the forties, uh, because it was surrounded by dry counties and people could come from North Carolina just over to be oh. to buy liquor, and they called it South of the Border, jokingly. You know, because it was driving. It was one of those. You know, cause <laughs> in the, yeah, because liquor laws in the in, in the in prohibition South, like post prohibition South, are ridiculous. And even pre in South Carolina, we're I think we're the only state to have an official state distillery. That for a while, all legal liquor in the South in South Carolina had to come from the state. <laughs> 
because I think I guess they were they were justifying that people in moonshine go make people go blind and poison people. So everyone's and those are actually major collectors' items as people collect glass bottles from the South Carolina distillery. When we still have that legacy today, where lots of counties and municipalities have blue laws that only allow you to sell liquor on certain days or certain times or in certain relation to you know churches or schools that are around the area. That actually gives the uh, the whole thing a little bit more gravitas to me okay. because if it's sort of a modern Bacchus, yes, that's even well, more right. Because I believe that was because you know it's it, the south of the border itself. I don't know if you're going to talk about this. It, it it's not just a tourist trap now, but it is also a there's like a petting zoo. There are hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. I know there was a big Ferris wheel, um, but the details of south of the border are sort of blurred for me because we arrived, as I said, we were going to Myrtle Beach and we arrived at South of the Border, which is certainly not Myrtle Beach, which is sort of, I mean, you know, like we were in this mindset, me and Trey were, were at the, at the time had just finished American Gods and it was very much top of the mind. Those signs, we were just like, we should really go there. I, you know, I'm not the best navigator in the world. It takes me many, many trips before I'm comfortable with a route. I certainly was not comfortable with the Myrtle Beach route. At some point, we were very far off of our destination. We missed an exit or something. And we could either arrive at Myrtle Beach late, but still in a reasonable amount of time, or we could go to south of the border, which was only like 20 miles away at that point. It was quickly unanimous. We're going to South Border. One important detail is that it was like three in the morning. It, it was very late um, when we arrived. In the mentality that this was a, a sort of haven for modern gods and a, a worship center for commerce and exploitative culture. So, in in all those ways, while it is sort of at the time for us, it was just like the perfect cliffs notes of of American gods just right there. We we wanted to go to the actual site of the House on the Rock, but that was pretty far away. And this really evoked the same sort of feelings. I mean, really, any tourist trap would get you where you're going if you've read American Gods. Preferably one with a merry-go-round, which I don't think South of the Border had, but again, it was 3 in the morning, so not a lot of the attractions were open. But they do sell fireworks. There's also like a a very like a like a wiener dog sort of statue that sort of stood in ominous and it was just i mean the fact that it was three in the morning added so much to it because everything was horrific <laughs> like every sculpture which there were a lot and and the like the wiener dog thing that did, didn't have any place in this at all they all took this sinister tone because it was so dark and they were lit from the bottom so it was like you were telling it, it was you know, are you afraid of the dark shit? That's awesome. It was just like this scary thing that we we were just giddy with how close it was of an experience of exactly what we had read in American Gods and just kind of like reveling in that. This culture that somehow got created from people having cars and transportation and roadside things to pull people in and spend money. Yeah, I mean, that's that's wonderful, though. But, you know, that's 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 great American entrepreneurship. And that's the big part of post-war America, you know, post-World War II America is, you know, getting the family in and going and driving. <laughs> and I love that some of these things still exist. I mean, classically, I know in American history, Route 66 was the big thing. All you that, get your all, kicks. Yeah. And all, almost that is, has, has died. But, you know, you'd still, you'd see like those, those desert sculptures of people, you know, burying cars in the sand. 
like sticking up. Have you ever seen any of those pictures? No. Oh, people used to do all types of roadside artwork. That that was a huge thing in a lot of these things was people doing like outsider art everywhere. Um, They have in Canada, they have these things called the giants of the prairies. They were the same thing about building gigantic statues of, you know, whatever, of folk (laughs) creatures, you know, folk heroes, Paul Bunyan, whatever. All right, let me talk a little bit about tonight's film, Torture Garden. 1967, horror anthology films have always been a really interesting mixed bag. Originally, as far as I could track back, the first famous one, 1945's Dead of Night, and that's that's a, a pretty good picture. But, you know, you get tons of these in the, in the 70s with, like, you know, Trilogy of Terror and... Uh, you know, Tales from the Dark Side, the movies the in the 80s, Creepshow, um, and even to today with things like you know, Trick or Treat or VHS, the ABCs of Death. But this film that we're watching tonight from 1967, created by Amicus Films. Amicus traditionally thought of as the lower rent brother to Hammer Films, which brought back the classic monsters like werewolves and vampires and Frankenstein monster in the 60s. Uh, with, with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, this is where all these guys really you know, get really start. Um, that's Hammer. Amicus is kind of thought of their low rent brother, who kind of follows along the tag, and they created a series of what the director called portmanteau films. Portmanteau is when you need to take two different words and shove them together to create a new word. Okay. We'll be watching the second tonight. Uh, I watched last night just to try to get back into it. Doctor Terror's House of Horrors. Um, which I believe is 64, 63. Either way, Peter, Peter Cushing plays a, a, a fortune teller telling these five different people their futures because it was like tap tap the tarot deck and it'll tell you the, the future that will happen to you and tap it one more time and I'll pull the card and show you how you can escape your fate. Wow. And that, that's the, the frame story. And uh, So it's, it, it's, a, it's a vignette of small horror? Yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but we'll play it and then when we come back on the other side... You'll see why I picked it tonight in relation to roadside attractions here on the deep end. All right, then. So we've watched the movie. What did you think of Torture Garden, Logan? I really liked it. It's an anthology film with uh, with several people going into a sideshow guy being the crappy sideshow where he just shows a guy not getting electrocuted. It was just like a wax dummy, I guess. And and the fake the fake uh, skeleton strapped to the wheel. Yeah, and all the bats, and they're like, "Well, you've got this for two sixpence. For five pounds, you can see the real terror." So for like a lot, a lot of money. So basically, you paid fifty cents for your average creep show thing. That's right. just like you know, uh, it's, it's eyeballs, but it's really just graves. And and the Barker in this is is played by Burgess Meredith, uh, famous for playing the Penguin in the Batman nineteen sixty series, and for many Twilight Zone episodes and. Many other things that he acted. A wonderful character actor for the years. I can always recommend anything. Yeah, he, was, he brought a lot to the role. And including a uh, penguin cigarette and a top hat. So Yeah, because he had the little cigarette holder. And the, <laughs> all he was listening to was the... <laughs> and five people following, uh, follow him to the back to, uh, to meet the god Atropos, one of the fates. There's a waxwork of uh, one of the classic Greek fates. Who's just a girl who is very good at standing still. Yeah, she's Until, a, she's like, a, the last moment of the film where she's, like, steadily lowering her uh, scissors. Her, her shears, yeah, because, uh, <laughs> you know, traditionally in, in the Greek fate story, you had three different women who were all one creature, who were different phases, who would make, who would weave the, the material essence of creation into, into threads. 
and then you'd have another son of the fate who would weave them into the the fabric of reality and fate. And at the end, the other the uh, final part would you know cut the threads of fate as it was time to remove them from the the woven fabric of time. So all the main characters have their threads cut short. Right. Each of them are, are given a, a glimpse of the future to, and that that's a lot. I re, I just watched Doctor Terror's House of Horror, which is the movie right before this one. It's it uh, it a lot plays a lot of ways as far as a, a character telling the future of you know, and then giving people to make a chance. Mm-hmm. And all these people are, are guilty of of different sins, whether it's. You know, familial murder in the first story, the relentless ambition of the second story, uh, the the controlling domination of the third story. Now, okay, let's be real. The two girl stories, they well, did not do that anything crazy. Well, we'll just break it down by, by each story. Okay. We'll talk about in, in the first story you have, uh, in the first story you have the uh, the nephew reaching, and, and Logan the entire time was like, is this a case of Charles Dexter Ward? Well, yeah, because he had uh, a wealthy uncle who only paid for things in pirate gold, right. and that's very that's very much the right. setup of Charles Dexter Ward. And, and you find out basically that that, that this uncle was was enslaved to a demon cat named Balthazar, as they pronounce it. <laughs> not Balthazar, but Balthazar. I was very mad they didn't pronounce it Balthazar. Right. Well, in in that story, that would if you read Charles Dexter Ward, the H.P. Lovecraft story then Balthazar would be Charles Dexter Ward. Okay. Um, but Balthazar needed people. Dexter Ward didn't really need people. Right, so he needed people to feed them heads because his entire... It's very uh, it's very Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Instead of blood, it's, uh, hey, I need you to cut, cut off the heads of people to but feed me. But it's an adorable kitty cat. It's yeah, this, piranha plant. This, like, black and orange calico-ish cat. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very small pupils... Feed me, <laughs> eating the heads of people, and uh, in each of these, each of these characters are given a chance to see a, a supernatural future that they can choose to change their fate. And at the end, Atropos cuts their thread to show the end of their life. Well, the let's rel- let's say okay, uh, that, that first story. He he was actively bad. Yes, yes. He uh, he chooses to murder his uncle, thinking he has you know, gold somewhere yeah. in the home because he, he owns... Like, he wasn't technically responsible for the death of him, but he could have... He was inactive in... When he puts the medicine to taunt him on the thing to tell me where the gold is, he kicks, physically kicks his uh, this chair away. Yeah. So, you know, he, he pretty much chooses to kill him. Yeah. So that guy's actively bad. Yeah. I, like some yeah. of the other characters... None of the characters are as actively bad as that guy, I don't think. Even, mm. even the last guy. Well, I mean, the last guy still murders... But that was like deep into his well into his trials. Okay, the second one we have uh, two different ladies' stories. The first one, uh, an American lady uh, and a Hollywood climber coming out to (laughs) coming out to the 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 golden city on the coast to try to you know fly her wares and becoming the greatest the great new film actress. I'm I'm definitely going to try to make ironing a uh, a thing for. Renouncing your enemies, or right. just getting rid of people, right? Because the, the 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 opening of the story is that the lady uh, has a roommate, and the roommate gets a date with a popular director, mm-hmm. and so to steal her date, she intentionally burns her her you know is fake ironing the dress and burns the dress that you know she I skipped lunches for an entire month to pay for that dress, <laughs> and, like, ah, and burns it, yeah, and you know steals her date. To become a social climber and meets with these other folks. It's odd because like that that director wasn't going anywhere. Like he immediately gets ousted. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean he's he's, he's the subject to kind of show the the seriousness of these of these other characters because you find out he's trying to get admittance to this 
group of elite actors and directors and producers. Ageless. Yeah, ageless. They call them the Immortal Ten, <laughs> uh, which you find out that it's a little apropos because this director doesn't make it into the group, so they... Uh, I guess they killed him? They killed him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they, they, that's, what that, that's the kind of gist of it is that, okay. they, that, that they killed him, but she's already kind of wiggled her way into getting a... Getting a She's already wiggled her way into getting a tryout with the director and the actor, you know, to get this new spot. Which, uh, strangely, she doesn't. She notices while uh, while she's sitting with them, you know, she's eating fish and their fish and chips and peas, which I don't think anyone was ever serving in Hollywood <laughs> right. in 1967. I mean, maybe, maybe, but I still don't understand why they ordered like big ass meals, and that's like somehow less covert than being like I'm full. And, and Logan and uh, we're trying to figure out like are they because they're not eating like are they vampires? Right. We had to stop. We had to replay the section where there was a mirror and be yeah, like, like, was his was his reflection in there? Well, it wasn't technically. You didn't see his skin. Right. I've already noticed this. I'm going to watch a, a couple more of these and see if it's true. I know there's already some uh, set dressing and little throwbacks to the first movie. The mask of the uh, that's used as the voodoo god Dambala from the first movie. Uh, it, it shows up in uh, in another one of the another one of the films, which I thought was really cool. That they, they kind of throw that one in, and they have a, a little part where they play a funeral dirge, which they did exactly the same in the first movie. So <laughs> I hope that continues. I'm gonna watch a few more of these. And Speaking of funeral dirge, that's a good segue into the into other the, girl's story. Into the into the third story uh, with uh, a professional piano player who calls his piano Uterpre, the goddess of music, and uh, the woman who was trying to take see this is the one who i felt was least deserving of anything like she i mean she was a little overbearing is what i dude just say no like (laughs) you know if she wants you to go out to eat and you don't want to just say no honey i gotta practice but you know you kind of get the idea that this fellow who's a world-class pianist uh, has been dominated his entire life. In the in his practice room, he has a picture of his dead mother that stares him at the the entire time. And I, I guess we we both agree that it's pretty heavily implied that Euterpe is his mom's yeah. spirit. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good that's a good guess because at the end, Euterpe the piano forces the woman out the window to that throw so to throw her out the window. I definitely think that that story was the weakest. In premise and execution, just like the piano forcing her out of the window was ridiculous. While playing the while playing, yes, it was it was kind of ridiculous. But but it's that 1960s wonderful type of campy. Yeah, you know, like I was mentioning. Yeah, but it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and the colors and stuff. It's really fun in there. A lot of the side angles, everything gets tilted, and they're like, "Oh, the piano's attacking me." And then we go to the fourth story with the actor played by Jack Palance, who I first learned as being Curly from City Slickers. <laughs> he <laughs> was, that was the best story by far. This guy's, you know, obsessive sleazeball, you know, glomping onto a guy who's like the world's best. Touching everything. Touching everything. Priceless collection. Of this priceless collection that played by, uh, of the collector played by Peter Cushing. Grand Moff Tarkin of Star Wars fame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But, but uh, he, he's, you find out his, uh, his, we find out as something of an evil wizard, as uh, he has reanimated the the grave dusk well, of Edgar Allan Poe. His grandfather. Oh, his grandfather right? did. Okay, okay. And it, it, he was the occult guy. I mean, like, I guess he's still sort of like inherited wizard powers because he's still able to make him write manuscripts for new stories. That that very Lovecraftian is passing down a curse and power through yeah. generations. Very, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very weightly. I feel like. To altogether, that made that Lovecraft story. I mean, especially Lovecraft was so influenced by Poe anyway. To have right. a story about a dead, reincarnated Poe that 
and you know, and more stuff we're talking. And there's also a bust of Pallas Athena mm-hmm. for more references to gods. So we have, and in the story, the Jack Collins' character kills the Poe collector to try to take the undead cor- the the undying corpse of Edgar Allan Poe, who's Peter Cushing has been forcing to write new stories for him. Uh, he releases him from his trials with the devil, only to have to take his place. But the best part that made the whole story is, like, after he saw his thread cut, he was so ecstatic. He was totally fangirling out. He was like, oh, my God, I get to be the girl and Poe, you guys. Totally going to sell my soul. I can't wait to sell my soul with the devil. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it was fantastic. But I, like, I, I picked this for some of the God references that ties back to uh, America Gods because I really liked... You know, or Turpre, you know, being a yeah. thought form as a piano taking life because it is thought of as a goddess of music and also could conceivably possessed by the mother, the mm-hmm. dead spirit of the mother. The goddess Athena, uh, you know, playing on a, a bunch of stuff in the Edgar Allan Poe story. Uh, I mean, the Edgar Allan Poe is also sort of a god figure in that, or, or in the same vein as American gods. Definitely. I mean, he is the birth of both the, the creator of the detective story in literature and you know the birth of american weird fiction right and this is a weird fiction story and he's sort of a god in in that and definitely would fit right at home in american gods and then you have plain old satan at the end you find out that uh that burgess (laughs) meredith's character is actually satan and he uses this carnival show to recruit you know for for souls because he figures if he shows (laughs) enough people here's the evil things that can happen to you is it worth it because i mean basically it's a lot it's it's low rent you know, soul collecting because mm-hmm. you just have people come in, show them things, and then some people want it. And Fangirl Dude, I mean, that's win, win, win. Yep. Because he's he's like, I'm already selling my soul to you later, homie. It's, I'm, it's totally I can't like lights, light Satan cigarette. Yeah. He's, he's like, like yeah. let's do this. <laughs> Where do I sign? So these are the morals that that Amicus was teaching the children <laughs> in 1967. But I I enjoy this movie, and uh, I definitely want to get you to watch some of their later films. Uh, Amicus. Although I'm not as big on some of their non-anthology stories, they did a huge collection of anthology stories. You know, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Uh, we have you know, this movie, Torture Garden, The House That Drip Blood. There's like four more. The, mm-hmm. two, the, the, two, the first two that I ever learned were the original Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror stories, where they made uh, these horror anthology films based directly on stories from Tales from the Crypt and uh, on Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. Specifically, these first ones were all based in stories written by Robert Block, uh, you know, famous for writing the novel of Psycho that, you know, that uh, Alfred Hitchcock based his film on. But, so did you enjoy it? I did. Uh, I, th- I thought it did tie very well into my very loose theme of carnival sideshow weirdness and how it relates to american gods right because you know because it, you know, it looks it, it looks weird and dark when you go for it but some people are going to buy into it where you sell your where you sell your soul for you know edgar Allan poe mm, can't wait <laughs> all right then <laughs> well thanks for everybody listening in this has been the second episode of the deep end with Halen pittman this has been my guest logan jenkins bye all right and everyone have a good night <laughs>